All right, good morning, church. <clears throat> My name's Dave. I'm on staff here at Summit Crossing. Uh, I'm not the, the teacher who is normally here every week. That would be Jamie Nettles, our uh, pastor for Preaching and Vision. He will be back here next week. Uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are glad that you're here. Uh, it's great to have you here, and we look forward to getting to know you more. Um, you heard the text read this morning. Uh, it's a big text, a lot of weighty truths there, and uh, I don't want to waste any time. I just want to dive right in. So let's pray, and, uh, and we'll get going. Lord, we love you, and we praise you that you are for us. Would you right now open our hearts and our minds to rightly hear and receive this truth, and God, would you apply it to our lives in the right ways? God, I pray that you would protect me by your spirit, fill me with your spirit, empower me to speak the truth um, in a way that is clear and accurate and applicable and helpful. God, would you guard me from error and uh, guard us from uh, anything I say that is off uh, or, or unhelpful. God, would you change our hearts, make us more like Jesus, and send us out by the power of your Spirit uh, into the world as your missionaries, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my goal in prayer this morning is that if you belong to Jesus, that you would see and rejoice in the truth that God is for you. And that that truth would then change the way you walk through suffering. So seeing the truth, God is for me, stirring your heart to rejoice in that and then making it, letting it change the way you walk through suffering. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, uh, if you don't truly belong to him, I just want to tell you right up front, you can. You can come to Jesus today and find that God Almighty is for you, not against you. If you turn from treasuring other things more than God and trust in Jesus alone to reconcile you to God, you can have him. Uh, absolutely anyone in the world can get in on this. Okay, so we, we are explicit about that. We are direct about that. We want everyone we can uh, encourage to come with us on the way to be in the presence of God. We invite you. We urge you. Uh, to trust this God that we're going to be talking about who is so radically devoted to his children. And if you want to talk afterwards or pray afterwards, uh, there will be several of us in the back, several men and women who would love to uh, pray with you and talk with you and, and answer any questions that you may have the best we can, go study Scripture with you. Uh, we would love to do that. So I'm just going to go ahead and put that invitation right up front uh, and say, we want you to know God. So please don't leave here without knowing him. That said, uh, the text this morning is written to Christians, and uh, it's written in a way that is reflecting on the gospel and how it applies and changes our, our lives. So, so my points this morning are going to address Christians uh, because that's the way the text is written. So if you're not a Christian, so glad you're here. Please uh, listen in. Uh, I invite you to listen into what God says to his people, and I pray that he would stir your heart to, to make you want to jump in. So here's where we're going. Two big headings over our time this morning. First, we want to consider from the text and from the chapter some evidences that God is for us. Secondly, we want to briefly consider, in, in light of that, how then should we live? So first off, evidences that God is for us. So these are going to be evidences from this text and from this chapter. There are many more, but I had to limit myself to just eight because I was told I could only preach for three hours. So... 
I actually went short the first service, so they told me I could just preach here until it's time to go to the picnic, so hope you all are comfortable. Just kidding. I'll squeeze it to a tight two and a quarter. Most of these first points, so seven of my eight points are going to be phrases that actually build on each other to make a complete sentence. And so uh, they'll make sense as we go. Uh, I think it'll make uh, more sense. One at a, we'll take one at a time. That's just the way it came together for me this week, um, but uh, I think it's going to work. So, Christian, God wrote this part of the Bible because he wants you to know and believe that he is for you. So let's look at our first evidence that God is for you in this passage. Number one, God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous. God treats us, his people, as if we were perfectly righteous. Look at it with me in verse 33. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. The great problem of humanity is that we have willingly rebelled against God, so we are guilty of the worst possible kind of treason, and we deserve His wrath and judgment. That's what most of Romans 1 through uh, 3 was about. In order for God to be a good God and yet also call sinners good, it would take a miracle because we're not good. We're not innocent. We are guilty, and we deserve God's judgment. It would take a miracle for God to be good and call sinners good. So God performed a miracle. Quite a few miracles, actually. The shocking news of the gospel is that, in the words of Romans, God justifies the ungodly. That is, he looks at sinners who have belittled his glory, who have traded him for other things and dishonored him and failed to glorify him as God, sinners who deserve his wrath. He looks at those people, people like us, he looks at us and says in the gospel, I declare you to be righteous. That's what justification means. It means to be declared or counted or considered righteous. And more than that, it's not just that God is looking at a bad person and saying, okay, I'm going to tilt the scale some, and you're going to be a little bit more than, than half good person. I'll consider you as a pretty good guy. No, Romans 3, 21 and following, if you want to look at that later, says God has given us his own perfect righteousness. This should make our heads explode. Folks, if you belong to Jesus... God counts you and considers you and treats you as if you are as righteous as God. If you belong to Jesus, God is for you. So God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous. Well, what does that mean? We'll see more of it as we go. Secondly, because of the cross of Jesus. God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous, number two, because of the cross of Jesus. Verse 34 says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The only way for us to escape the wrath of God that was against us would be for a perfectly righteous human substitute to take God's wrath in our place. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. The Bible says Jesus is a propitiation. It's this big word that means he is a wrath-satisfying substitute. He turns away God's wrath. He satisfies God's anger and judgment toward us. So the picture here is that Jesus didn't just die on the cross. 
He took God's wrath in our place on the cross. The hell that we deserve to experience forever, Jesus took all of that in our place in the span of a few hours as he hung on the cross. That's what he was referring to when he said, it is finished. The payment has been made. Jesus is able to experience the equivalent of an eternity of hell that we would have experienced in a finite amount of time because Jesus, though man, is also God. And God, being infinite, can absorb an infinite amount of wrath that is toward us. So now, the hell we deserve, Christ took. So now the righteousness only He has earned, He gives to us. God, in the gospel, counts you, considers you, treats you as perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus. God is for you. Thirdly, God treats you as perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus, thirdly, who is a gift of infinite worth. I love this verse. Verse 32. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So pause for a second because, whoa, what does it mean God's going to give us all things? Let's, let's deal with what that means in a second. But first, take it at face value God's going to give us all things, and let's follow the logic that Paul uses here. Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. It goes like this. If God has done all of this over here, of course he'll do this easier thing over here. That kind of language only makes sense when the first action is vastly more significant than the second. It's like if, you're, if your wife doesn't trust you to do something that you said you'd do, you'd say, of course, you can trust me. I've, I've been devoted to you all these years. I've, I've, I've married you. I gave you my life. We share everything. I, I've, I've been faithful to take out the trash. You can take whatever it is. You can trust me to do this, this little thing that I said I would do. S- something along those lines, something much bigger, implies that, of course, the second would follow. So what does that mean here? If God gave his son for you, of course he would give you all things. That means it is easier for God to give you the universe than it was for him to give you his son because Jesus is more glorious and more valuable and more precious than all the universe combined. Above all creation, Jesus is a person of infinite value and worth. He is the eternal son of God. He's the image of the invisible God. He is glorious in his being and in all his ways. He is sinless, spotless, and changeless. All things were created through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. He is perfect in his patience, love, goodness, and kindness. He has all wisdom, power, and all knowledge. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is God with us the firstborn from the dead, the head of the church. In all things, Jesus Christ is highest, first, and foremost. And this is the Son, this is the person, the infinitely valuable one whom God did not spare for you but gave him up for us all. If God gave you this Jesus Christ, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus, who is a gift of infinite worth. Fourthly, 
to let us share his inheritance. To let us share the inheritance that Christ has earned. This is what we saw in verse 32. Again, if, if he didn't spare his own son but gave him up, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is this referring to? Well, back at the beginning of this whole section that goes all the way back to verse 16. Let's look at verse 16. Paul wrote, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God owns all things. Jesus, as God's heir, inherits all things from God. They belong to him, they're for him. And shockingly, this good news of the gospel makes us joint heirs with Christ in such a way that we inherit with him all things. What does that mean? Well, first and foremost and above everything, our inheritance in Christ means we will inherit God himself. We will experience him. We will know him, enjoy him, love him, and serve him forever. We will be in his presence. We will marvel at his beauty. We will never get bored at looking at and experiencing and interacting with God because he is infinite. He is inexhaustible. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Christ, God has given us himself. This is the inheritance that we get to enjoy in Christ. And as if the Almighty, who is infinite, were not enough, and he is, on top of that, God throws in that we will inherit a new heavens and new earth that is set free from the curse of sin. We will inherit a new heavens and a new earth that is set free from the curse of sin. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth is for you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours, whether life or death or the present or the future, etc. All things are yours, and you are Christ, belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will inherit a new heavens and new earth that is set free from the curse of sin. No more tornadoes or earthquakes or tsunamis or sweltering summers. The earth will be renewed, and it will be ours, and for the first time in your life. You will enjoy God's creation to the full in ways that you now can't imagine, and not once will you be tempted to commit idolatry with it. You will never once be tempted to love the created world more than you love God. You will enjoy God and love God and experience more of God through the world that he has created. You will be using it all as means to worship. It will be pure and beautiful and perfect. But to enjoy God... And to enjoy the resurrected world, we need the third aspect of this inheritance, which is that we will inherit a new, glorious, resurrected body. And that's the next evidence that we see in our text. God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus, who's a gift of infinite worth, to let us share his inheritance next and to make us become like him. God did all this, not just so that we could share the inheritance of Christ, but so that in ways that just blow my mind, that God would in one day make us like Jesus. I'm not saying that we will become God. I'm not saying that we will become infinite or of infinite value like God. I'm not saying that we will become little gods. 
But there is a staggering truth, a sense in which we will be transformed to be like Jesus. Bodily, we will have a body like his. Mentally, emotionally, I believe we will be whole and without deficiency like he is. And relationally, we will have perfect nearness with the Father like he has. All these things. Look at verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. What's our destination? Where are we going? To be conformed to the image of his Son. God really is going to make you like Jesus, and that is far better news than it tends to sound to us. Because a lot of times we hear, you, you know, God saved you to make you like Jesus. Oh, you know, rules. I got to stop doing some stuff that I like. I got to start doing some stuff that I don't like. God, Jesus is holy, and I like this other stuff, and I'll just kind of, okay, let's, let's go towards Christ-likeness. No. Jesus, the glorious one, the, the, the one who has perfect fellowship with God, the one who perfectly reflects God's glory back to him, is making you more like himself. It's inc an incredible privilege beyond all description. We will be made more like Jesus. Bodily, no more sickness or weakness. We will have resurrected bodies. No more glasses or surgeries or antibiotics or ICUs. No more miscommunications or misunderstandings or mistakes. Your mind will be renewed. You will listen rightly and understand rightly, and we will speak patiently and, and understandably with one another. No more aging and no more death. No more sadness or pain or regrets. No temptation and no more sin or brokenness of any kind. Behold, our God in Christ Jesus makes all things new. Christ became like us in the gospel so that, wonder of wonders, we could be made like him. God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus, who's a gift of infinite worth, to let us share his inheritance and to make us become like him. Next point. All because God loves us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, no one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ loves you. Verse 39 says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you, so he planned this whole enterprise of redemption. Jesus loves you, so he gladly went and accomplished your redemption. The Spirit of God loves you, so he indwells you and applies the work of Jesus to your life and secures you for glory. God is for you. If you are a Christian, no matter how badly you may be hurting, Life is hard. This world is painful. Sometimes it's just misery after misery, and it feels like, am I ever going to get any relief? No matter how badly you're hurting right now, no matter how difficult it is to believe, your Father, the God of the universe, loves you. Jesus Christ, the infinitely worthy Son of God, loves you. We say it this way. We like to say, God doesn't just tolerate you. He delights in you. He truly loves you. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see the love of God. Jesus didn't die for you to get God to love you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. Jesus died for you because he loves you. 
There is no reluctance in the heart of God towards his children. He loves you, and that changes everything. God is eternal and unchangeable. Jesus Christ, God the Son, has always existed. He is eternal and unchangeable. What he knows and feels now, he has always known and felt. You know, there's that turn of phrase we like to say, that has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God, right? God didn't ever learn anything and go, oh, you know what, now I like that. Now, now I've learned something and I'm going to respond. No, God has always known what he's known. He has always felt what he's felt, which means as long as there has been a God, as long as God has existed, he has loved you. If you are in Christ, if you come to Christ today and turn from sin and say, yes, I be- this good news is so great, but I, I see the cross and I see the payment for sin. I believe that Jesus is sufficient to make me right with God, so I trust in you. If, if you are in Christ, then there has never been a moment from eternity past to now and into eternity future when God has not fully and savingly loved you. God treats us as if we were perfectly righteous because of the cross of Jesus, who's a gift of infinite worth, to let us share his inheritance and to make us become like him, all because he loves us, and that will never change. That will never change. That's one of the main emphases of this passage. All this good news, all this reflection of the gospel, the kindness and goodness and devotion of God that he has in his heart towards you is never, ever going to change. Paul's saying, who's going to argue God out of doing good to you when it's Almighty God himself, the righteous judge, who declared you to be perfectly righteous? Who's going to successfully condemn you before God when Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord of glory, is the one who stands before God as your advocate? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about all the bad things? What about all the stuff that is against us? circumstances and pain and brokenness and people. People are against us. There are Christians now dying horribly for their faith. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? So like if being destitute economically, you can't even provide for your basic necessities or danger or sword. What if I have a violent death? What if they actually come and kill me? Paul's answer is no. No one will ever be able to make God stop loving you. And more than that, I think part of what Paul is getting at here is we tend to interpret suffering as meaning that God is against us. Oh, I must be doing something wrong. Or, or maybe God's not really on my side. If, if, if I were truly a Christian, maybe things wouldn't be going so bad for me. No. Paul says nothing that happens to you in this world is ever evidence that God has stopped loving you if you're his child. The worst thing that could happen to you in this life is not that you would suffer horribly. The worst thing that could happen to you is not that people would hate you. It's not that you would experience lifelong hunger and malnourishment. Christians in some places are suffering like that. People are suffering that way. The worst thing that could happen to you is not that you would live in constant danger or even that you would be violently killed. No, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that God, your Father, would stop loving you. And Paul says on the foundation, the unshakable rock of 
who Christ is and what He has done for you, that will never, ever happen. God will never stop loving you. Because of Christ, you are perfectly secure. No one and nothing can thwart God's gracious plan to you. So the idea is, if God was for you in eternity past, in planning this, if, if Christ was uh, for you in the cross, in purchasing this, He's going to be for you all the way. So let's unpack that a little. Because if we stop right there, the love of God for many of us might feel like a very small comfort in our suffering, right? I mean, sometimes, let's be honest, it would not be unusual for somebody to look at this kind of passage in the Bible and say, okay, God, I hear you saying that you love me and that one day everything's going to be good, but right now I am really hurting. And maybe I've been hurting for a long time, physically, relationally, Mentally, there's brokenness in the world, psychological disorders, personality disorders, emotional disorders. There's suffering that we experience in this world, and sometimes it doesn't get better. A person might read this kind of text and say, God, that's great that one day you're going to make all things new, but today my wife still has cancer. Or today, God, my husband still left me. Or my kids are still breaking my heart every day. It seems like I can't do anything about it. Well, God, I hear these great future promises, but I'm, I've been single so long, and I'm tired of this, and everybody looks happy, and it just feels like no one in this world really loves me for who I am. That's real suffering. So if you're hurting right now, and you hear all this talk about the love of God and future restoration, you might want to say, what good is the love of God for me now? How does God being for me help me today in my suffering? That's a huge and valid question. And the Bible gives us an unbelievably good answer. I said this whole section in Romans 8 goes back to verse 16. And all the way through to the end of the chapter in verse 39, it's all one of the main themes is of suffering. Let's look again back at verse 16. Paul writes, the Spirit himself. God himself in you bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified together with him. So there's one piece. Let's think about that. I couldn't find a source for this quote, but it's widely attributed to Augustine, who was one of the early church leaders and he uh, reportedly once said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. So we have this privilege of being made like Christ. We have this privilege of following Him and going with Him. He's in us in the Spirit, and we're going to be in His presence forever. And there's this privilege of being made like Him. But before Jesus could be glorified as our Redeemer the way He is now, He had to walk through the path of profound suffering. And before we can share Christ's glory as His redeemed, we will have to walk the same path of profound suffering. There's just, there's really not a way around it. The Bible is clear. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The world is a broken place, and Christians are going to suffer. But it, all this takes us to our eighth and final evidence. So what's the good news here? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with Jesus in that, and that's good. 
All of this means God is always for us, even in our suffering. That's our eighth observation here. Verse 37. What's going to separate us? Natural badness, personal badness, brokenness, all this stuff? No. In all these horrible things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So how are we more than conquerors in suffering? In the tribulation, in the danger, in the sword, as you're being martyred or as you're starving to death or whatever it is, as the agony of broken relationships doesn't fade, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror in those things? It means that where suffering and opposition threatens to tear you down, God causes it to build you up. That's what Romans 8.28 means. All of this, we're skipping over like the coffee cup mug verse, right? Like we'll put Romans 8.28 on our coffee mugs. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, how does it work together for good and what's the purpose? We don't put the next verse on the coffee mug, but we should. It says, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. All things are working together toward that purpose. God is making you more like Jesus now. That future glory that we talked about, that's this incredible, unspeakable privilege to be made like Jesus, it actually, that process stretches back into the past. And the more you walk in faith in Christ, the more you depend on God and trust in Him and cry out to Him and love Him more than the pleasures that you're missing or the pleasures that you could be... This whole sanctification process, that's the glorification process back here. You are being made more like Christ. And God is for you and using your suffering in that. What is the purpose of God according to his purpose that it talks about? His purpose is that we would get home safely, persevering in faith and be finally made like Jesus. Suffering never means that God is against you for his children. All of the suffering in this world, whether it's sickness or natural disasters or evil done to you by another person, it is meant by God to draw you closer to Him. So it is worth it. It is meant by God to make you lean more on Him. It is me- meant by God to make you more like Christ who trusts God and obeys God and depends on God and experiences God. It is meant by God. All this suffering, no matter what it is, no matter what you're going through, it is meant to make you treasure Him above all earthly comforts. And so find your highest satisfaction in Him rather than in the mere avoidance of temporary suffering. It is meant by God to make you long for more of His presence. The more you long for heaven, the more you are like Jesus. And it is working for you. All this suffering is working for you a future glory so great that you will one day say, my suffering was as nothing compared to this joy in the presence of God. And it worked for me, this joy, in ways that right now we can't fully understand. So what do we do with all this? If God's love and goodness are toward us, even in our suffering, how should we live? Well, first and foremost, of course, if God is for us, let's praise God. Let's worship Him. Let's lift our hearts to Him and, and not cease to keep coming to Him and keep worshiping Him. But more horizontally, kind of a mixture of both, I've got one main point here to reflect on, and it's on the screen. If God is for you, you don't have to be for yourself. 
And here's what I mean by that. The default posture of heart for so many of us, I think, I think it's this natural human condition. Because we're selfish, we're not oriented on God, we're oriented on ourself. We're not oriented on eternity, we're oriented on now. So the default posture of our heart is, in every situation, what can I do to maximize my comfort and security and minimize my temporary suffering? What can I do to maximize my comfort and minimize my suffering? That's our default. That's our, our status. God saved us for so much more than that. We don't have to be selfishly for ourselves trying to store up earthly treasures and earthly comforts and earthly security. It's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. You are going to die, and there is a greater way to live, a more joyful, more fulfilled way to live in Christ, looking forward and walking with Jesus through suffering rather than running from Jesus and trying to avoid suffering. So let's trust Him with, when suffering comes. If, I don't have to, if the default posture of my heart doesn't have to be maximize comfort, minimize suffering, then, then I'm in a better place to, when suffering comes to trust God and say, you know what, I know there's something better than this because I'm not after just a comfortable life and a suffering-free life. I'm after Christ. I'm after glory. I'm after being made like Him. I'm after displaying Your glory to the nation. So God, if You want to continue to allow this suffering in my life, I will trust You because I know that You are for me in it and You are working for my good through it. So we can trust Him when suffering comes. And proactively not just when suffering comes, but if, if God is for us, you don't have to be for yourself. That means when you read the commands of God in Scripture and they sound to your natural uh, flesh like, uh, like suffering, you can trust that God's commands for you are good even when they cost you. Let's trust that when God says, save yourself before marriage, when God says, go to all the nations, when God says, love one another, bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, when, when he says, love the outsider, and I, I get it, man, it's awkward, like, oh, there's this person out here, and I, man, when's the last time I shared the gospel with anybody? I, it's never just going to happen. I've got to be intentional. I've got to step out. I've got to take a risk. I've got to be uncomfortable, step outside my comfort zone, and go to somebody who maybe is very different from me, maybe he doesn't want me, but, but they, as far as I know, they need Christ, and they have no hope apart from Christ, and I've got Christ, and I'm going there. And I, shouldn't I want this person to come with me? And there's, there's a little bit of in-the-flesh suffering that comes with obeying Jesus and going to that person. We can trust that His commands for us are good. I've been so stretched over the last couple of years about, I'm, I'm awkward. I'm not an extrovert. I, this is easy. Preaching to a crowd, small talk is hard for me. <laughs> like, preaching is easy. But going up to, especially going up to somebody I don't know, it's like, yes. They're wearing a hijab. I can tell they don't know Jesus. They're, they're advertising Muhammad. So I should want to know them. And they're made in the image of God. My life's going to be enriched by spending time with them. So let God empower me and help me to trust that you are for me in this. And it's as much as my, my natural tendency is to feel like, oh, this is agony because I'm so just selfish in my orientation. I can trust you're good and I can obey you. So let's do that. Whether we're making big life-changing decisions or small daily split-second decisions, let's pray for a heart that does not ask, how can I maximize my comfort and minimize my suffering? But rather, let's pray for a heart that asks, how can I walk more closely with Jesus 
and help others do the same. God, make that the posture of our heart. How can we walk more closely with Jesus and help others do the same? If you're in Christ, God is for you. You don't have to be for yourself. You don't have to posture and perform to impress others. There is no need to defend or avenge yourself. There is no need to live for now when you have eternity with Christ. The gospel changes everything because in it, God is for us. Let's read these verses to close. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If it cannot separate you from God's love, then God's love is on you and for you in and through it. And it is turned from being your enemy ultimately to being a servant of your joy in Christ. So you've more than conquered. Praise God. Got some prayer directives. Let's take some time to pray and just reflect. Uh, three quick things. You know, follow the Spirit. Pray as God leads you to pray. Uh, but if you need some prompts, here are three things that came to mind. Number one, let's praise God for His unshakable devotion to you in Christ, that He is for us, and that's never going to change. Secondly, let's pray for God to increase our faith in His goodness in our suffering. God, help me not be so quick to accuse you of wrong when I suffer. I'm so quick to say this is is not right. And let's pray that we would treasure Jesus and the good of others over our earthly comfort and security. Let's take some time to reflect and pray, and in a moment I'll come back up and close us and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for 